You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now, the podcast series for entrepreneurs, real estate investors, developers, and anyone interested in urban revitalization. Our host is David Michael, a real estate lawyer with the Lipson Nielsen Law Firm. One of his areas of expertise is urban revitalization. David's guests will include some of the difference makers involved in all aspects of urban revitalization throughout Michigan. You'll listen as experts discuss acquiring land, redevelopment, and real estate and nonprofit law, immigration and economic redevelopment, private equity, venture capital, and more. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, David Michael. Hello, and welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now. This podcast is produced by Lipson Nielsen PC, attorneys and counselors. I'm your host, Attorney David Michael, and I'm here today to talk with Francis Grenau. Francis is a native Detroiter, an urban policy consultant, a writer, a part-time parade maker, and he uh, he used to be an urban planner for New York City. Francis is the Francis is the perfect <laughs> guest for this podcast because he describes himself as an urbanist. He loves cities, and he believes that cities contain more of cities' answers than its problems. Welcome, Francis. Thanks. Thanks, David. Nice to see you on this very cold uh, January. Uh, it's, not, not, it's a lot warmer inside, I can tell you that much. It's a, it's a lot warmer yeah. inside, but yeah, just before we started, we were talking about the problems with this cold. I mean, it's actually below zero now, right? Yeah, I think they they said it was colder here and then in parts of Antarctica or the Arctic. I think it was Antarctica they they were using with the wind chills, especially. Be careful out there. I I saw a uh, newscast this morning on TV and I heard, and and I still don't know whether I heard this correctly, but for Chicago, they were forecasting 50 degrees below zero with wind chill. I think Chicago was the one I saw. Maybe it was Minneapolis. The, the, one of those big cities, it was the coldest, you know, anywhere in the country for decades and decades and decades. That's insane. Yeah. The polar vortex. Yeah. So uh, there's this, uh, there's another podcast or actually, I, I think it might actually be a radio program as well. Um, that I was listening to this morning and they were in, they're based in Chicago Uh and they were talking about how cold it was there. And people were writing into that podcast from Winnipeg, Canada and laughing at them. (laughs) It's like, they're basically wimps that they, yeah, that they shouldn't be so upset about how cold it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that we have this general, um, you know, schools closing. I think we have become softer in, in recent years, um, around some of these closures and sort of getting too proactive around the weather forecast. You know, it was funny uh, a few days ago before it got really cold, but it was supposed to be the snowpocalypse, you know, of uh, the most recent one. That's what that, I was calling that, it. That was the, yeah, the, the presage of the uh, vor- vortex. Uh, some of my friends who have little kids were really going off about how they were upset that schools were closed and there was no snow on the ground. <laughs> and they were like, uh, this is fundamentally a problem. One one guy said, I hope you teachers are living your best lives today <laughs> because I'm certainly not. <laughs> but, you know, um, that's, that's the world we live in. And uh, it is cold. I will say it is cold outside. It is cold. And I think the closings, that that's kind of an urban problem, isn't it? I, 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 
one of my favorite movies, Mystery Alaska. Oh yeah, they, they take everything in stride, right? The, mm-hmm. the weather, but when in a big city, in, in most big cities, things come to a grinding halt. They when can, yeah. yeah, and 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 uh, mayors don't get elected if they didn't get last year's snow uh, removed in time. No, it can be a real problem, and um, in the infrastructure issues of uh, the weather and and how. You know, I think the flip side of that, too, is it really is amazing how when we have uh, systems that work well and we have people who know what's going on, how how quickly some things can get cleared up um, when when you have a system that works well and, and a system that's efficient. So, yeah, they, weather can hit and uh, and also be surprisingly uh, w- well uh, navigated when when we have things that uh you know when the when the plows go out and when the the snow the, the the salt or sand or whatever it is uh goes out and and those legions of of real hard workers you know working on the subway tracks or whatever it is make make the thing go that's when when cities are amazing as well well i'm going to ask you a, a quick question then because you were an urban planner for new york city and you're a native right. detroiter right Compare the two cities for me, for for, for the listeners. Wh- who's better at uh, these natural catastrophes <laughs> uh, dealing with them? Is it, is it New York or is it Detroit? Oh, that's a good question. I, and why? Yeah, they're very <laughs> different places, obviously. Um, you know, I, I think the the idea of uh, – let's say it's a weather – let's say it's a, a snowstorm or whatever and, uh, and you have to clear uh, a lot of snow – the, the philosophy, I think, in in a place like New York around getting pedestrians to um, infrastructure, to transportation like buses and subways, I think is is fundamentally different there. I mean, it's not that we don't have uh, those questions, but I think since we're such a car-based uh, uh, city, um, roads and, and clearing paths for roads uh, in Detroit is 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 you know what the focus is. That's where the resources are. Um, where in New York, it's getting the trains running because getting the trains running gets the commuters uh, to work and gets uh, sort of the the lifeblood of the of the city going. Not that roads aren't important or don't um, you know also take uh, precedent, but I think there's just a slight difference in that sort of philosophical approach to I, I am a citizen of this place and the the public realm, the the the, the city is uh, you know clearing the sidewalks. Uh, making sure the paths to the bus stops are open, making sure the paths to the um, subways are open in a way that I think is fundamentally different here. Here, unfortunately, you see a lot of times um, that kind of public infrastructure around like bus stops, for example, uh, you see piles of snow all around it and uh, and sort of a, a lesser thought to to the people that might be using that. It's certainly a lot fewer people here. But um, I think that's one one difference that you can see right off the top. Um, but they're they're you know they 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 both are great American cities. Um, they both have uh, a lot of sort of genetic material that that's similar. You know they they both grew up around industrialization and and uh, and grew at the early part of the twentieth century like no other places on on Earth. Um, you know, so you, you see the the same quality of like skyscrapers in Detroit as you do in New York. You see a lot fewer of them here, but. 
um, kind of those defining elements of kind of the American city uh, you see in, in both places, um, the kind of iconic skyline and, and the money that was um, made during that time. Actually, a lot of it was made here with the auto industry. I mean, you think about Detroit being um, kind of the center of or a center of capital uh, about 100 years ago. Um, and, and the same with New York. New York was a financial capital. Detroit was the automotive capital. And, uh, and, and it, you know, it, it had so much resource and it built it, it built itself up, um, in the same way that, that New York did. Um, it, it, I'm going to, um, and that was a great observation and I, I totally understand that, but which city do you think, which would deal with snowpocalypse better Is, <laughs> and, and basically by, by your own terms, um, or yeah. on your own terms, New York City is more geared to the commuter, commuter by train, com- commuter by bus, sure. a- and the motor city is is more geared towards people commuting by car. Right. It, is it more efficient to try to deal with a snowpocalypse in New York or, or, or in Detroit? Well, I think if you ter- talk in terms of sheer numbers, I think New York is going to win that um, just because, you know, Trains move so much more uh, people. And they're underground, and, right? You know, they're underground. And, and so just that sort of getting that part of the city uh, operating makes it work in a way that, you know, Detroit doesn't have that infrastructure. We we planned for subways, I think, at least two or three times in the past. And for various reasons, you know, we never got our subway. Um, and so, therefore, you know, we have these huge uh, – freeways that we, you know, we do pretty efficiently because that's, you know, that's how we've evolved them. Um, but then, you know, we basically focus everything on getting to these sort of major employment centers, which in Detroit's case are dispersed, you know, over the region. Whereas in New York, there's, there's a very strong centrality to where people are going. And that's, you know, mostly in Manhattan and downtown and, and, uh, midtown Manhattan, um, Primarily, not exclusively, but, um, you know, so moving a lot of people, New York does, uh, better, uh, but, you know, getting, uh, roads plowed, you know, it might be a toss up (laughs) and and maybe Detroit would, 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 would win that. Um, and just, uh, I think, you know, we have that question of, of, of the severity of, of storms in both places and, and whether they can shut a place down, um, my anecdotal experience is that uh, Detroit gets a little cold. You know, Detroit is a little bit uh, – gets a little more winter than, than New York. It's a little more temperate. I think the, the ocean uh, has a, t- a more temperate effect on, on the city. They have these things called nor'easters, which are a different weather pattern. They basically just come up the coast and are often very wet. And uh, snow is sometimes associated with that. It can get as cold in New York as as Detroit, but I think the 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 temperature generally is is, is colder here. So we might be better situated to to dealing with a a longer, stronger winter. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds yeah, like to me yeah. too. Well, one of the things in your bio that. Uh, um, piqued my curiosity yeah. and I'd like to talk just a little bit about it. and I think this uh, has something to do with both cities uh, Detroit and New York uh-huh. both of those cities are known for among other things Thanksgiving Day parades right yeah yeah so in your that's bio right. yeah and I had mentioned part-time parade maker that's right. you yeah that's that's tell me, us about that right now yeah uh, so I uh, have been inspired by uh, 
the public realm ever since I got into cities. You know, this is the, the basically it's the stuff that happens outside. It's the stuff that happens in the street. It's the stuff that happens um, where everybody can see. And um, that's right. That's that's like ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? It goes There's all the-, the way back to civilization. You know, it's like one of the cornerstones of civilization is like what happens in the places where people get together. Uh, and where, you know, it's kind of like how society, um, gets to intermingle and, and the places where you have, you know, someone from like a higher class or the, or in the case of like, you know, other civilizations or other societies, you know, like the king or whoever, and, and they interact with people at the other end of the, the spectrum. Um, and, and, and there's an equality to it. There's, there's a sense that, you know, that space is equal to everybody. And one of the ways that people, you know, again, for many, for thousands of years, people um, do these presentations, displays, cultural uh, moments where, you know, a, a story is told or a procession goes by or the, the state, uh, you know, shows its might by, you know, parading uh, its, its military or soldiers or, or whatever. There are all these different ways of, of, of using it. Yeah, for, we almost had one of those uh, military parades. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> we uh, we dodged that um, at least so far. Uh, um, our president saw one in was it France? Where 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 was he? He was, he saw it someplace else. I think it was. Uh, and uh, yeah, we we, um, we we got around that. So anyway, the 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 idea is that um, it was a very old element to society and uh, and parade culture. Um, shows itself in different ways. And like you said, in New York City, they have um, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, it's one of the biggest. Detroit's is also one of the biggest and oldest. Um, it was formerly the Hudson's uh, Parade, and um, and we just had it again uh, recently. And so those are examples of, you know, communities coming together, um, big corporate sponsors, you know, um, showing off, um, their largesse to a community by sponsoring a, a float, a very colorful float or having marching bands or whatever. Well, now that, you know, that's a good point because I would, I had thought to myself that yeah. when I watched the last Thanksgiving Day parade in Detroit, that a lot of it seemed to be self-serving commercialism. I, I'll just say it, advertisements. It is advertising, yeah. But I like the way you, you, you kind of, you know, reposition that uh, the perspective on it, that it's showing the community the largesse of very important employers. Sure. I mean, and when it was the Hudson's uh, parade, you know, it stopped at Hudson's and that's where um, Santa Claus did his, his, uh, I think he got a key or gave a key to the city. I can't remember one way or another, but yeah, I think he got, he he got the the key from the the mayor. Uh, yeah, so that's where it happened, and it was in front of Hudson's, and that's where all the photo ops were. It's like, this is Hudson's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and of course, then everybody shops at Hudson's, you know, for, for the holidays. It makes sense. So, yeah, this is a, this is a thing that resonates all, you know, all over the world. And for me, um, another touchstone for, for a long time has been New Orleans, and, uh, and New Orleans, of course, does Mardi Gras and all of those parades. And, um, I uh, actually, while I was in law school, at the end of my law school career, I was uh, talking to my friend who was uh, uh, a, a few years ahead of me, and we were sort of at this moment in cold January and saying like, oh, you know, this sucks. <laughs> Winter sucks. And 
he was getting on this uh, this line of thinking, which was uh, about going to New Orleans after Katrina. And Katrina, for him, uh, and seeing Mardi Gras for the, for, for the first time after Katrina, I think they had to skip a year. And then the next year afterwards, Mardi Gras, he said, uh, which he was at, was like one of the most cathartic things he had ever experienced. And it meant he could tell for the city of New Orleans that they were beginning to heal because they could come out, um, they could do all their crazy uh, parading, they could uh, really enjoy the city and each other in a way that they hadn't been able to over the previous you know, year plus. And we got in this conversation about, well, why doesn't Detroit have something like that? Like, we, you know, obviously we do the Thanksgiving Day Parade, but this is a sort of different kind of parade, um, you know, the, the Mardi Gras Parade where people it's a little more participatory um you know people are are engaged in a different kind and, of way and it's unique to new orleans right very and unique to this that city i mean it, I, I think there's new orleans and is it rio de janeiro they that? do like a carnival yeah it, it, you know it's like um yes it, it's very unique to new orleans but it has its uh feet in these other places culturally um and carnival is is part of that tradition as well and, and detroit didn't have detroit <laughs> didn't have it and and so then right so we were starting to to go down this line of of question detroit is actually older than new orleans detroit also was founded by the french uh i mean cadillac came here and then he went to to louisiana uh afterwards so there's a i think they just they just celebrated their 300th uh birthday actually um and we did in in 2001 the 1701 so i think they're 1718 um once again i have let down my guard and i learned something today <laughs> well i just learned that too I, I i knew detroit was older but i didn't know it was it was that and i was just there um so we were like well if you know, if these things are true, also just to, to take this a little further, Detroit also has this incredible cultural um, gift to the world through its music, through its uh, through its art and culture. Um, everybody you go anywhere in the world and, you know, uh, people who are listening to Motown music or, um, you know, more recently, like, you know, electronic music has a huge worldwide appeal. Um, blues and jazz, too, also have strong Detroit roots. There's this cultural melting pot, at least um, from a regional standpoint. You know, people came from all over the world to to Detroit. So it has these similarities. And so why doesn't Detroit do this thing like Mardi Gras? So the question was, what if we did something uh, where we asked the question, what would Detroit's Mardi Gras have looked like or what would it look like? If it had started, you know, almost 300 years ago. So that got us to looking at this uh, origin story, this myth of Detroit, which is the name Rouge, which means. Oh, OK, wait a second. Yeah. Say that again. Well, it, it's a bad pronunciation. Uh, I think in real French, it's like non, non, nine, nine Rouge. Uh, and what I, does that mean? But in the in the Midwest parlance, like we say, Grashit yeah. instead of Grashwa, <laughs> uh, or Livernoy instead of Livernois. It just means red dwarf. So rouge, like the river rouge, um, or you know, rouge that you put on your face, red, and nine or nine is uh, is dwarf. Yeah, and and uh, it's this original legend of the city, uh, wherein Cadillac, the guy we just mentioned. 
who uh, founded the city, who the car's named after, uh, came here and was warned on the way to regard this thing, a uh, creature, a spirit uh, that haunted the city, the Nain Rouge, by a fortune teller on his way uh, when he stopped at in Quebec. And as these stories so often go, you know, he uh, disregards the the fortune teller's warning to regard the Nain Rouge. And when he sees the Nain Rouge, um, you know, sort of dancing with the Nain Rouge is characterized in different ways as kind of this, um, you know, he's a dwarf, so he's a small creature, but has like glowing eyes and uh, rotten, scraggly teeth and furry boots. Um, you know, he like drives the Nain Rouge away and, and they have this tete-a-tete and the Nain Rouge then curses Detroit and, and Cadillac. Um, and so, you know, that part of it comes true. He does he ha- he's taken away from Detroit and sent to uh, Louisiana and then back home to France. And he does die, you know, penniless at some point later on. So aspects of of this uh, c- come to pass. But, you know, the the Nain Rouge is this sort of mythological creature. So we use that story to create a parade around where the Nain Rouge appears before Detroiters to launch his latest plan to take the city down. And, 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 and now I've actually, I've actually, uh, well, I can't say March, but I've actually, part, I have participated oh, awesome. in the Nain Rouge parade and I, I, I want to. Did kind you of, dress up, David? I, I don't recall. Oh, can I, can I tell okay, you? I just you don't explain. recall, but. You're going to describe it in better detail than I can remember because I, I think I did it only once. It was a great deal of fun. Mm-hmm. There were some crazy costumes. There were some crazy get-ups. I mean, there were – I don't know that you could call them floats, but there were vehicles that were propelled by by various means. Um, and, and I think the purpose – Did you imbibe? I'm going to have to take the fifth <laughs> on that one. Um not the whole fifth, but maybe a, a I realize this is a sponsored podcast. And <laughs> you have to be careful. Um, but the the thing I wanted you to explain was that um, th- there was a purpose to the parade, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, there's a few purposes, so I hope I hope that 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 I hit on it. But um, uh, yeah, people come dressed. You're supposed to come. Yeah, but but the purpose um, relating directly to the, to the Nain Rouge, it's to oh, drive him out. Yeah, right? yeah. It's it's to it's to basically. Uh, meet the Nain in Detroit. The Nain meets you, gives the latest version of whatever's gonna he's gonna how he's gonna take down Detroit that that year, and in response, Detroiters rise up against the evil spirits of the the Nain and and celebrate spring, and it's kind of this catharsis experience. And you know, of course, he'll come back next year, but for that moment, there's a lot of good energy and and spirit. Yeah, so the Nain Rouge goes away for a year. So yes, that's the purpose of the. That's the kind of. Uh, Going back to ancient civilization, you know, and, and the the role of these things, it's like to get everybody together and and feel good about a moment together. And doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter you know who you're standing next to. It could be anybody, but in that moment, you're you're all on the same page, and that's that's really the 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 idea, the sort of fundamental idea behind it. Um, yeah, you're supposed to come dressed as your alter ego, so the Nainers doesn't uh, recognize you. And uh, I see, and uh, and curse you. So you better be careful next time, uh, because if he spots you, be like, "Oh, David Michael, I remember you." Um, so, so you're supposed to come as as your alter ego. There's um, tons of different creative costumes that people choose. There's sometimes themes. Um, people come as neighborhoods or you know as a community group, 
and uh, and we've had cars. We call them art cars. So different um, floats, cars. We for a few years we wanted to stay away from cars and have people uh, hand build stuff. Sort of like uh, chariots, you know, that they pulled or pushed. I recall seeing yeah. some of those, and I think and some bicycle-powered yep. uh, yep. vehicles as yep. well. Because we wanted to keep it intimate and and keep it approachable, so people, you know, there's a lot of interaction uh, with it with the public art. As we've grown, um, the cars are becoming a bigger part of it. But we still, the thing about it, I should have said this off the top. It's really unique to even this parade is that it's a free event to anyone. And as long as you come, I mean, you're supposed to dress up, but even if you don't, you you are the parade. You basically, you know, walk the route as opposed to coming to watch a parade go by. That's kind of a, a you know fundamental difference with with the the Nain Rouge, the March to Nain Rouge, versus even some in in New Orleans where you're going out and watching the 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 parades go by or the or the Thanksgiving parade. So you create the event. In as much as you watch the event, that's you know that's incredible. That I I remember that very well. As opposed to most parades, and even as you point out, Mardi Gras, where there are lots of spectators lining up on the sides, there were relatively few people right. watching, watching the parade. Yeah. But I've got to tell you, I remember. I I think that we joined the parade, and and this may have been the staging area. It was right about Third uh, Street. And forest, I want yeah. to say, and we ended up, if I recall correctly, in Grand Circus Park. Uh, Does that Cass sound right? Park. Cass no, Park near the Masonic Temple. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right. And I don't even know how to estimate how many people that that, that I can recall that were involved. There were a lot. Yeah, we, <laughs> it, it's we, like if you took a parade, if you took the spectators to a parade and put all those people in, in the, the parade. parade. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think I think we we've peaked maybe a couple of years ago at um 7000 maybe we think uh and it the the weather like it, it rained 2 years ago and it was very cold you know it's like weather contingent a little bit but several thousand people you know probably at least 5000 this is the 10th anniversary coming up on March 24th um of this year so uh we hope 10000 people come for the 10th anniversary. I am going to make a point of doing that. I think I'm guessing that I have to um have been a participant in either the first sounds like but, an early one, but that more you went likely to. the second yeah. because it was about that long ago. Yeah, and you know we're kind of we're kind of spending a lot of time on this topic, but I'm, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, and um, speaking of imbibery associated <laughs> with this, and and you may explain that a little more, but I do recall that in Cass Park, yeah, there was there there were booths set up where you could right. uh, so. Uh, you could you could purchase beverages and and I believe um, comestibles, but what what I'm getting at is so uh, apparently you're involved with um, uh, some kind of uh, vendors from the community, yeah, businesses yeah. from the community yeah. that are yeah. involved in this. No, a lot of uh, businesses support it. Um, the the parade goes through an area that has been known historically as the cast corridor. You know, part of the intentionality around it was to just get people to understand that they could walk from. You know, the, the Wayne State area down to Cass Park. And it's, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff to see. There's a lot of stuff to do. There are places that you can go along the way to bring, um, you know, your friends. It's a, it's a family event too. People bring their kids. So there are restaurants to go to now, more retail shops to go to. 
Um, and at the end, uh, uh, now we've gone inside the Masonic Temple. Uh, we did uh, just stop at Cass Park just outside the first few years. But now there's a big, huge dance party inside the Masonic Temple with other vendors as well. Um, so it's a free party inside. I mean, you can uh, pay for, for food and drink inside, as well as all of the other, you know, Traffic Jam and Old Miami and uh, uh, uh Bronx Bar and and old and the 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 Temple Bar. These are all you know long standing uh, institutions in in this neighborhood, as well as all the new places that have been opening up in recent years. So it's it's really a growing tradition. Do you have an organization or or, or you know some kind of company that actually is responsible for pulling the permits and <laughs> yeah, organizing everybody, we, getting insurance? I imagine you have, yeah, to have insurance. Yeah, um, we are uh, now a five hundred one c three. Uh, that happened just a, a year or so ago. Um, we had been a project of Midtown Inc. Um, so it was an independent project that affiliated with Midtown Detroit Inc. Um, and they were a fiduciary. Um, and, uh, you know, it costs at least 10 grand to do that stuff that you mentioned. Public state, you know, deep, uh, pl- the Detroit Police Department, Fire Department, Wayne State Police, uh, insurance, porta potties. Uh, getting porta potties. That's important. Yeah, if, that's if there's some bribery going if on, if there's some bribery going on, porta johns are essential. Um, yep. Uh, getting the the streets barricaded, getting the the permit. You know, with DDOT, it's really from like, a city planning perspective. It's kind of easy or interesting. I should. It's not that easy. I I wanted to say it's very interesting because you have a meeting. Actually, I'll be going to this in a few weeks where you're sitting at a table. And all of the city departments are are around and they basically, you know, take shots at the event. And, you know, do you have this? Do you have, you know, do you have uh, this number of portagons? Do you have this number of uh, barricades? Um, do you have a fire plan? What's the, you know, all of the, all of the, the questions that they ask. And uh, it's kind of this, this quick study in, in what the city cares about in order to sign off on something in the streets. Well, that's important, though, right? I Absolutely. Mean, you need to have the city's involvement. You need yep. to have the approval. You, you certainly want and, and, and people need for their safety the participation of Absolutely. the uh, fire department and, and the police department. Um, when Can you tell, tell us when the uh, Lenane Rouge parade is this year for 2019? Yep. It's March, Sunday, March 24th, and uh, things get kicked off around noon. Uh, the parade itself starts around one thirty, and it's about 10 blocks. Um, so it's definitely a great afternoon, doable afternoon. Just make sure you come dressed. Uh, it starts at the corner of 2nd and Canfield, right across from Traffic Jam Restaurant, March 24th. Now, when you say come dressed, how should people <laughs> dress? Uh, well, like I said, it's your alter ego. So it's however you really interpret that. I think most people, you know, you on the one end of the spectrum, you know, people may put a little bit of like, you know, uh, red glitter in their hair or, you know, put put something on their on their face or wear funny uh, glasses or or a Mardi Gras kind of masquerade mask with that just covers the eyes. You can do that on one end. And then on the other end, people go all out. And uh, we'll do crazy um, sort of steampunk kind of inspired, you know, costumes yeah. with the the steel or the um, yeah, the, the sort of leather and, and steel and, and all these crazy elements. Uh, you have people dressed as, uh, you know, in themes. So 
One year we had a, a, a number of sloths that came with these amazing paper mache heads and the claws that came out. Um, people have dressed as, uh, you know, robots and as, uh, pirates. It, it, it's basically a free for all. It's a freak fest. Some people have called it. <laughs> um, but it, it has its roots in this tradition of, you know, the sort of Mardi Gras tradition that, that sort of style. And some of the early costumes, um, you know, some of the people wore like 18th century, uh, garb or, you know, colonial outfits or, you know, to, to kind of, touch on that that time when when the thing supposedly might have started you know the the going back to that whole conceit of like what what would this have looked like um so it has this kind of like i think you've given me a clue to how i'm going to dress yeah. this year <laughs> i've got a three-cornered ca- hat there you go there there are some some <laughs> Not of those, a three-cornered cap but a three-cornered hat some of the uh, uh, tricorns some of tricorn those, some of those hats that's right yeah yeah um that's definitely been something people wear and uh you know all sorts of different things. So I would say if you're interested in, in what people dress up as, just Google it and you'll see and, and go to the image, uh, click on the images and you'll see all of the craziness that people have come uh, over the years. One last question. Yeah. Does the Nain Rouge himself make an appearance? The Nain Rouge always seems to show up. <laughs> uh, we, we haven't missed the Nain Rouge yet. So the Nain Rouge should be appearing. Well, that's I. I am really looking forward to the yeah. parade, the Nain Rouge parade this year. And you know, we're going to have to have you back to talk about other things because there were a lot of other things I wanted to talk about. We still have, I think, about twenty minutes or so. Um, so I'd like to ask you a couple of things. One, sure. I, I think you and I reconnected recently at uh, an event at the Detroit Urban Consulate where you were giving a talk, right. and. This this ties in with your self description as an urbanist. As I recall, you were talking about parking in Detroit and parking in cities in general, right? And how one of the things that we can do to revitalize cities, which is after all kind of our our, our theme here, right. one of the important aspects is to make it make cities make their their vital centers more accessible to people. And one of the ways you suggest is by Dedicating less land, less flat land to parking, uh, parking lots yes. and even parking garages and the alternatives to that. Right. Yeah. That, that's right. I, um, I did it. Um, actually, it's funny. I'm, I'm reflecting on this. I think it was canceled due to weather, uh, and was rescheduled for about this time last year. And, uh, a lot of people came out to hear this talk about parking. I was really surprised. Oh, your, the urban consulate yeah, talk. Yeah, urban consulate yes. event. Uh, I can I can vouch for the weather being very bad indeed, yeah. Yeah. and I can also vouch for it being extremely well attended. People were pouring out the doors, yeah. literally. Yeah. So the the urban consulate um, uh, was it, it's, which is you know really Francis. I'm sorry to interrupt, but no. that really is kind of a testament to people wanting to see city centers revitalized. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the issue. People get the issue. It's it's kind of in some ways it's a boring topic, but um, Urban Consulate has been doing these uh, speaker events around different ideas um, for the city of Detroit. It was out of the uh, McKenzie House, which is uh, currently being moved by Wayne State. Actually, it's uh, sort of another another topic, but uh, Urban Consulate has moved temporarily to to Scarab Club to host these events. And I was speaking about parking, and um, I am someone who you know, as you mentioned. 
accurately. You know, I think of cities as being, you know, the, the, the places where we can experiment with society and they hold society's problems. A lot of people have issues with cities because of, you know, all of the things that, um, that go on in them, uh, and their, their challenges. But I think on the flip side, they are also the places where we try things out and we discover our, our, um, our opportunities and our answers and parking unfortunately has become a thing uh, for a lot of cities, Detroit included, and maybe at the top of the list where we allocate a lot of our space to parking. And if you think about uh, the experience of going into a city um, or a city center, you know, the downtown and you look around you and you think, well, what are the, what, what's the one thing I see most of? And, uh, and if you look at a map and, and, and allocate, you know, land use, parking takes up about 40% of Detroit's land use, which means that, you know, almost half is taken up by just the, the, the ability for someone to be able to get there. 40%. 40%. I, I can't imagine that is the same percentage of land dedicated to parking on Manhattan. Not at all. You know, and, and, and I think, some people would say that the parking in Manhattan is even uh, too much, but it's a lot less than than Detroit. Detroit is definitely skewed on one end of the spectrum. There's something like sixty thousand parking spaces uh, in in downtown Detroit, and if you if you think about what you know what that means in terms of uh, the the just the amount of infrastructure and resources devoted to just being able to contain this thing that you know, takes people in and, and takes people out on an individual basis. Um, it's kind of astonishing. And, and when you think about how cities work all over the world best is when people, people, individuals circulate through cities, not cars. You know, cities are built for human interaction. That's when they're, when they're, when they're at their highest and best use, when you and I can most easily uh, uh, sit across from one another and then go someplace else using our own person and do the same thing and exchange, you know, money for service or, um, go to an office or go to a park. It's, it's, it's that ability to, to move around as an individual. And as time has gone on and as, as cars have become more ubiquitous, a lot of places have, have unfortunately chosen to allow for cars to take that primacy of, of of space in in cities if you look at a picture of of say detroit in 1920 of downtown detroit in 1920 and take a look at that same street scene uh today most of the buildings are gone and 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 that kind of goes to this idea that we've prioritized our ability to come in and go out over our ability to use the city to do what the, the what the city was built to do um so my uh my talk on parking you know touched on some of these these ideas and elements and and was really based around uh what we might think about doing differently to kind of address parking in a more holistic way in a way that would actually allow for the city to work better for us uh as 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 citizens and as users of 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 cities um without necessarily radically uh changing how people um, you know, it, cars are ubiquitous. There's no doubt that people use cars and, and cars have utility. It's not to say that uh, you got to get all the cars off the road. Even in New York, if you look, you know, one of the things that you see all around you are cars on the street. So it's about managing cars and it's about 
putting them in their proper place and making priorities around uh, people and, and, and making choices around getting people uh, their primary position in, in a city. So what does that practically look like? Well, one of the, uh, so I, I have this sort of parking guru, like a lot of people, this professor out of, I think he's UCLA or USC, I can't remember, he's in California named Donald Shoup. And he uh, highlights this idea called the, the high cost of free parking. Americans very early on uh, latched on to this idea that we should be able to take our car anywhere we want to go and be able to park it for nothing. Well, sure. And we also latched on to the idea fairly early on that we should be able to drive our cars up to a restaurant and get food without even getting out of the car. <laughs> yeah. Do our banking without right. even getting out of the car. We've evolved that idea quite a bit. You're right. And, and it's sort of become this whole uh, game of, of, of being able to do about just about everything without actually getting out of your car. And so, um, you know, he he acknowledges that cars are ubiquitous. He's not some utopian, but he has some. He first he did a ton of research starting in the 1970s around how car policy and management, how you know, basically the rules around uh, cars in the United States, um, basically undermine cities' abilities to um, be as efficient as they can be and and actually provide for people. And he has uh, all of this great research, which you know shows the cost of free parking. And I think I was looking up this the other day. It's something like every year we incentivize free parking to the tune of something like $300 billion, which means that that's the, the, the costs that we put on other people to have them provide free parking for us. So think about it. You know, you walk outside. Um, did you pay to park in the lot here? Well, no, I didn't. Uh, so well, that, and by the way, we're, we are at the studio of uh, Podcast Detroit in Royal Oak, and they share a parking lot with a neighboring business. But yeah, parking is free. Yeah. So I mean, so they may have a uh, a more progressive view on sharing. That's a that's an interesting thing. Sharing a parking lot between two businesses. That's an idea. But in terms, and of, you got to get into things like easements. Yeah. Yeah. So you 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 lose out on some public access because the car has to pass from the public area of the road onto the private area, the parking lot. And then it's not free to build that parking lot, right? Or maintain it. Or maintain it. It's I think it's about $3,000 for every surface space that you create. So that's part of the business plan that goes into building a a a, a, a structure like this, a, a commercial building. Um, and then the costs go way up when you start building parking structures. I think it's like $20,000 for per parking space for uh, a space in a parking structure. So these are costs that are passed down to uh, the people that build this stuff, frankly, the developers uh, and the, the, the commercial real estate interests, um, and ultimately the people who buy into it. So Let's say you're buying a loft or something, you know, that parking space is caught up in the, the, the price of that, that loft. Um, and we, we, should, we should recognize that here in Royal Oak, uh, this, this might be the loft capital of uh, lot, southeastern Michigan. There's a lot of lofts and, and a lot of big parking structures, frankly. That's I, right. I just saw a new one. I was like right off of uh, 11 Mile, right? And, and, and Main Street. There's right. a 
a massive new parking uh, deck over where I think the, the city parking, the surface lot was. So, you know, parking decks are more efficient than, than surface parking. But basically the idea is that we, we devote a lot of land to this, this thing, this, this, this thing called parking. And, and what that does is it's reiterative down. It means that, um, the more parking we create, the more parking we need because things are further apart. And so it becomes this, this, you know, vicious cycle. It kind of reiterates on itself and the further apart we are. And so we can't walk to something or bike to something. We have to drive to something. And then that thing is now that much further. So, you know, it's, it's the basis of sprawl really. And, and, um, frankly, Detroit is one of the inventors of, of, of that kind of land use um you know northland shopping mall is is seen by many people as the first big suburban shopping mall which basically was all of the commercial activity surrounded by a sea of parking and anybody who tells you that they regularly will take a bus or subway which we can't but you know some form of public transportation to a mall and get out and walk to the mall you know that's a very very small percentage of people Whereas a hundred years ago, when you're talking about downtown Hudson's, that was uh, right at the center of um, dozens and dozens of streetcar lines, bus lines, you know, all of these different ways to get to it. And you took, you know, a bus or a transfer or you got dropped off or whatever. But basically, you look at downtown Hudson's and there's very little parking around it, yet it served the same purpose as the Hudson's that anchored uh, Northland Mall and, you know, was eventually the um, part of the the precursor of the death knell of, of downtown Hudson's. So um, Shoup has all these crazy uh, ways of looking at this issue and, and all of this research. And he boils down uh, this issue into three ideas around how to manage parking in cities, especially in, in, in city centers that are struggling with this. You know, part of what's compelling about this right now for Detroit is we were right at this moment where any particular building downtown, it, it's starting to make more sense as a building than as a parking lot because people want to live in, 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 in downtown Detroit. There's, there's a lot more investment, especially, um, younger people who, are choosing, you know, urban lifestyles. Younger people and their parents are, are more often choosing this, this kind of denser urban lifestyle. For many years, uh, that wasn't the case. And, and you could rationalize a market reason for why a parking lot, which is actually, you know, less floor area, less intensity, intensity was the better choice in downtown Detroit. So we're at this tipping point. And every time we knock down a building, it becomes harder to build it back up. But if we keep and maintain what we have, we're starting to create enough market force for filling in some of these spaces. So I can tell you what his three, his three ideas are. Um, they're pretty straightforward and simple and kind of counterintuitive. Um, the first one is to disassociate parking uh, requirements from uh, a building. So zoning 
a thing that's been around for almost 100 years. Sure, now you're talking my language. Mm-hmm. Almost every city for every any particular uh, district they have, and typically the districts are residential one, residential two, light industrial, commercial, mixed use, things all. like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, there are always a parking requirements associated with whatever you're developing. And that's a huge cost, for, as you pointed out, for the owner or the developer. Yeah, so so that is... Uh, but you're saying we can get a, we can get away with building the business without the yeah, parking? His, his, he, he, one of his areas of research is uh, looking at what minimum parking requirements are across the country. And they utilize this, um, uh, I can't remember, it's the federal, tra- I, it, there's some uh, association that gives the numbers every year and he's call, he calls it pseudoscience because it's based on, you know, this uh, McDonald's lot in Kansas and this one in Maine, and it, it, it synthesizes a bunch of uh, uh, case, uh, a bunch of instances into a suggested minimum parking requirement for any particular use. So it's not just building types, but it's also what is going into the building. So you have a different parking requirement for like, you know, a a bar or a restaurant as you do for a dry cleaner. You know, the, there's there's going to be slightly different numbers or can be slightly different numbers. And his point is that is all based on uh, it's this induced demand question. The more we give, the more we take. And, and, and therefore, to take those numbers away and just say, let the market figure that part out uh, is a much better approach because what you are left with is a lot of unused parking. Where you have a a parking lot that is mostly, if you look at its daily use, is mostly unused. And so what the market response can do for that is, yeah, this person and that person can start talking about, well, you know, how do we share this resource? Or or is there an incentive to have this resource be shared differently? And what's the true cost of this resource? Because ultimately, it is a resource that we've forced developers (laughs) to create. And if you look across a city or across a region, parking is mostly unused on any given in any given moment. Car, cars mostly sit for like ninety five percent of their life. They sit in a place, and parking spaces are mostly empty <laughs> for most of their life. And you know, you you point out something that you know, developers, real estate attorneys, anybody involved with. Uh, with with new projects in urban or suburban areas for that matter we just fall into this trap where we just assume we have to deal with that right unlike a visionary like uh professor shoop yeah who says well maybe we don't have to maybe do that we anymore. don't yeah we 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 had society for thousands of years before this this idea came into vogue and now we're kind of hamstrung by it and and we create basically unattractive unusable places because of it we're, we're kind of running out of time here yeah. so there are just a couple of things i want to do first of all i think you, you can't leave the podcast listeners hanging you have to tell everybody what uh professor shoop's uh, two other uh, sure. fundamental ideas are but i also want to get into uh just briefly um, what you actually do as an urban <laughs> policy consultant, <laughs> barely just briefly, and, yeah. and maybe give um, uh, listeners some information that if you can assist with 
with their needs in urban revitalization, urban policy, things like that, they can contact you. Yeah. So the first two, uh, the, 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 the last two, Professor Shoup. Yeah, I'll, I'll do those real fast. So, um, and they're related. Uh, the second idea is that uh, street parking, which a lot of people use quickly and easily, it's the area on the street that's allowed for, for parking, not, not off-street parking. That's the public. That's the public realm. You and I own that. Um, if we live in a place. And so cities undersell that is the basic idea. And people are willing to pay for it. Now, they may not be happy, but they are willing. There's a there's a market price for it. And cities need to do a much better job of understanding what that price is and pricing accordingly. And, and there's new technology. It's becoming easier and easier to do that. So where space may have... Um, uh, more uh, higher price at certain times, people are going to pay that. And so the point of that is called dynamic pricing. Pay, uh, charge what people are willing to pay and keep it at a price where there's always availability. So that means bumping it up a little bit because a lot of time is spent what he calls cruising for a parking space where you're like looking for what's open because, and you might go around the block a few times. There's a, there's a market dynamic where if you price it so that 20% of the spaces are always in some kind of turnover, then that's kind of an optimal level of pricing. Correlated to that is the third idea, which is keep all of that money local. So there are these, um, so instead of it going into the city's general fund, it will incentivize a lot of a lot of people would say, "Well, why are you going to charge for parking in front of my business? Uh, that should be free. People are going to come in." You know, no. The way that you get to those people is you say that money that we're charging on at the spaces that's going to go into creating a better public uh, realm in front of your business. So improve street lighting, um, street planting. Uh, create a better environment for people and have that money uh, circulate locally in the neighborhoods and business improvement districts, keep it out of the general fund and keep it locally accessible. So uh, there are a few different ways of, of, of doing that. There's uh, business associations, you know, business uh, improvement districts, but, but having that tie from the, the public space to the local neighborhood be understood as as the as the connection point. So that's the way to uh, garner the the buy in that you need in order for those spaces to realize their highest best use. Those are the two ideas. What I do, I have a planning and legal background. I call myself a, a public policy consultant. Um, I uh, have several clients now. Most of my clients are uh, nonprofit organizations working on policy in the city of Detroit. Um, we, one of them focuses, for example, on affordable, getting affordable housing policy. Um, affordability is a, is a big issue all over the country. Sure. Um, in Detroit, there's a lot of what we call naturally affordable housing, which is, you know, Detroit's still a depressed market in many ways. Um, but how do you build into, as the market is recovering, how do you build in affordability so that uh, you don't have these sort of um, hyper spikes in in, uh, in 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 new construction where you're just building exclusivity or not building inclusivity into neighborhoods and into into cities. 
Um, and we're kind of seeing a little bit of that in um, uh, the Corktown area, right? Yeah, it's beginning to happen. Where it's it's begin, you know, the with that uh, announcement of the seven hundred fifty million dollar campus that Ford's building. You know, there's going to be questions about well, where are those five thousand people going to? Um, are, are some of them going to live there? That you know, what's going to be built? What are residences uh, going to go for? Yeah, it's becoming an issue. Um, so I, I do some of that work. Um, I've worked with uh, historic tax credits for um uh you know rehabilitation projects um i've done work with uh uh cdfis that's um uh they're a mission-based lending institution uh and and also we're working on their some of their policy uh, ramifications for doing stuff in in detroit um so policy is my sort of bailiwick um but i i do it on a project based so you know it could look in a lot of look like a lot of different things one last question for you and then first of all actually before i get to the last question um no i'm going to ask the last question first okay that doesn't make any sense the first I'm, shall be last the last shall be first okay now we're getting yeah. biblical yeah but if you had any Anything out there oh, in the yeah. world that yeah. you could work on, that you Big could be project. part of, yeah, yeah. what would it be? Man, that's a good question. And it, when you first asked that, I was like, oh, I got a few answers. Um, so my first, I'll, I'm going to answer it in two ways. Um, one is, I think Detroit's biggest uh, challenge is itself. And when I say that, I mean, uh, I'm speaking psych or um, psychologically about the southeast, the whole southeast of Michigan. We are all Detroit, and we are our own worst enemy, I think, in terms of being a global presence, in terms of participating in a global marketplace. And we let, um, you know, these, these longstanding issues of race and class and uh, this side of 8 Mile and that side of 8 Mile get the better of us in terms of really working together to solve some of these, these issues, transportation, schools, water, you know, some of these, these issues that government um uh has has traditionally been the leader on um and so i would love for there to be a a, a rationale around some form of regional uh governance where we all sort of buy into some idea of what detroit looks like together i know politically that's um you know kind of a uh uh, it's the holy it's grail. A, it's a non-starter. Politically. It's the holy. It's the holy grail it, of regional politics here, right? So, um, so I, I think about that a lot because I think we would all be better off, um, with with some version of that, and uh, and I can think of a million ways that we could start that conversation. So, ultimately, for me, um, it's a regional question, and I'd love to be part of that. Um, creatively, I've I've thought about uh, uh, a. a movie or HBO kind of story set in Detroit, uh, sort of post-wire Detroit as a beautiful place and what are possibilities. I'd love to direct that and maybe we can work on writing that together. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. How can people contact you? Um, they can email me. It's just my name, Francis Gruno at gmail.com is, is the easiest way. And I have a lot of emails that go to that. And that's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-G-R-U-N-O-W at right. gmail.com. That's right. You got it. Terrific. Questions about this podcast or really anything uh, relating to urban revitalization, call or email me. Um, be sure to visit our firm's website at lipsonnielsen.com. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Revitalize Our Cities Now. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or questions about the show, you can email us at dmichael at lipsonnielsen.com. Make sure you join us again for our next episode when we talk with another difference maker helping to revitalize our cities now. Thank you.